1: Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And today we have a special guest. We have Karen Solomon, and she is one of the founders of what used to be called Blue Help, but is now called First Help. Welcome, Karen.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today.
1: Blue Help began in '15 after The Pay was written by you and Jeffrey McGill. Yes. Yes. And can I ask you, um, what motivated you to write this book? And, And how did it all get started?
2: Sure. Um, My husband is a police officer. And after the incident in Ferguson, there was a lot of negative rhetoric about police, you know, hands up, don't shoot. And it became very frustrating for myself and for a lot of other people that I know that are married to first responders or that are first responders. So we essentially... Um, as kind of a gift or a way to say to police officers, hey, we understand what you're going through. Everything you do isn't bad. Uh, We chose to write this book. So we wanted to bring a spotlight onto mental health and law enforcement and what was going on with them and all of the good things they do. So it actually started with a book called Hearts Beneath the Badge. And that book talked about good things that police officers do, such as buying a prosthetic leg for a homeless gentleman. So then after that book, we started to talk about uh, what, what the trauma was to law enforcement. So we decided to write a second book called The Price They Pay. And that book is about the trauma, cumulative trauma, incidents that affect their mental health and how they cope with it. So once we were writing those books, Jeff and I, we, we found that there was this gap with regard to mental health in law enforcement. So nobody was really paying attention to uh, how many officers were taking their lives. A lot of officers felt they couldn't seek help. They didn't know where to get help. So we wanted to try to fill that gap a little bit by giving people resources saying, Hey, here's where you can go. And by the way, here's how many officers are taking their lives. And it just kind of exploded and steamrolled because we, we filled this gap that was huge um nobody was tracking these statistics year over year and we started doing it so so we actually started it because of the incident in ferguson missouri because it was just very frustrating for me as a wife and a mother of children who you know their dad's a police officer and how we were being you know treated and how we were being portrayed
1: i see so how do you how do you um how do you track the the number of suicides across the country. How does that work?
2: So, I mean, what we, do, yes, it's, it's not easy, right? Uh, so, what no, we. No, I can't is,
1: imagine it can be.
2: <laughs> no, it's, it's really not. So, it's um, so January 1st, 2016, we started tracking suicides year over year. And what we did was we have a website that you can go to and you can complete a form if you know of an officer or first responder. So, we started as Blue Help. HELP stands for Honor, Educate, Lead and Prevent. So we wanted to honor the service. Um, We wanted to educate people about the issue. We wanted to lead by doing things that no one else had done and prevent through training and awareness, prevent suicide. So we started as Blue Help and on January 1st, 2016, we started tracking the law enforcement suicides. We did Google searches. We contacted departments. We contacted families. We have a form on our website you can go to. And if you go to our website, you can see the form and you can complete it for any first responder, any duty status, any year of death and tell us about them and, and their suicide. And we have a dashboard. It's an interactive dashboard. It's a live dashboard. So as information comes to us, it it. it Adds right to the dashboard. So if we have 112 suicides today and we hear of one tonight, tomorrow you'll see 113 on our website. So it's all automated through these forms that we have in the background. And what we do is um, we check the you know Google alerts, see if there's any suicides we haven't heard of. It, it only it took us about a year to really get a footprint, but it, it it ramped up pretty quickly because of the fact that no one else was doing it. And and the reason it's been easier than we thought to collect the suicides is because when we hear of a suicide, we send a care package to the family, a care package to the department, and a memorial blanket to the family with their loved one's name embroidered on it. So that gave us a, a certain amount of trust in the community, and it was kind of a, if, if we report this, we're going to get support. So they they weren't getting support before. They Now we have college scholarships, we have retreats for them, we have uh, Christmas assistance, so we have all these things that we can offer to them that no one's ever offered them before what We did. So now, by word of mouth, people say, Well, I don't know where to go. And they say, Well, go to Blue Help. They'll help you and they'll tell you where to go and they'll get you some assistance. And so we've partnered with different organizations around the country to help them. So we get the data to answer, you know, I seem like I'm answering your questions in a very long way, but we get the data from. Um, families, officers, uh, the news. It it comes into us in a lot of different ways. And unfortunately, we know we're not getting them all. I, I wish we were. I wish we knew how many we're not getting. But each year we seem to, you know, be able to reach more departments and more people and we find more and more. So our number is also a rolling number. So if you go to our website and you look at the number for 2016, if somebody reports a suicide to us today that happened in 2016 that we don't get, we didn't have, you'll see that number increase. So so it's not as if it's a fixed number. That th- Those numbers are so dynamic as we hear them. And I think the earliest suicide that we might have is back to 1952. If I remember correctly, so we've got about we've got over two thousand suicides in our database. The bulk of them, about twelve hundred and fifty of them, are from twenty sixteen forward when we started collecting. And the reason we now are first help is because you know firefighters and EMS and and dispatchers said, "Hey, what what about us? What's happening with us? Why can't you support us?" And we said, "Okay, let's support you." So first responders is now its first help because we support all fresh responders and collect data on all first responders now.
1: So what you're saying to me is that if I was a, somebody was a police officer and they, they took their own life because of all the stress of the job and everything that the actual, there was no support for the, for that family. Like, like if you get shot on the, while you're on duty, And you die, then there's a lot of things that isn't, doesn't the family get, Mm -hmm. you know, well taken care of. But in your, in the suicide case, they don't get, even if their suicide was as a result of the event, because they couldn't cope any longer. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So in 2016, when we started that, that's what was happening. So for instance, we live in Massachusetts. Massachusetts takes very good care of the first responders. God forbid my husband died in the line of duty. I would get a $300,000 death benefit from the state. I would also get a three $400,000 death benefit from the federal government. I would also get his pension, a portion of you know his salary. I would get health insurance. I would get college assistance, um, as well as national recognition and and whatnot. Not, not that that's a substitute for my husband, but that is what I would get. So so at the end of the day, I would walk away with a million dollars at least in my pocket because I live in Massachusetts um, before, before life insurance and everything else. Now, God forbid my husband took his life, I would get nothing. So I would get whatever he's invested in his pension, um, but I would not get any other death benefits. And that has changed. So because of what we've been doing, we have helped to influence legislation. And we did this because of that, because all these families were getting absolutely nothing, their children being pushed to the wayside, the stigma, you know, you see people walking kids to the prom or the first day of kindergarten all the time because their officer died in the line of duty. But if an officer dies by suicide, nobody walks their kids to the first day of kindergarten, nobody takes them to the prom, they pretend it didn't happen because of the shame and the stigma. So that. That's how things were in 2016. Now, since then, we've been able to influence changes in the culture and legislation. So the Public Safety Officers Benefit Act was passed and last year in 2022, in it's actually the public safety benefit officers act of 2021 and what it does now is it allows certain suicides to receive that one-time death benefit their names don't go on the memorial wall like a line of duty death they don't get the extra benefits they simply get a one-time payout from the federal government and some college assistance if they meet the criteria of the law so the law now says if an officer dies by suicide And you can prove one of two things. You can prove that within 45 days of their suicide, they experienced a traumatic event or harrowing event on duty, and their suicide was a direct result of that event, you can qualify for this benefit. Or if there was nothing within 45 days, but you can prove over the course of their career, that there were traumatic events and what they call harrowing instance, instances that affected their mental health and they died as a direct result of that, you can collect the benefit. So it's it's a little bit tricky and we don't know how many families are actually going to get that benefit. The um, Congressional Budgetary Committee estimated that about 60% of the people who file for claims would would get it. So so we're looking at potentially 50% of the families who have officers who die by suicide will not get the claim, will not get that benefit. So again, it's a one-time cash payout of $300,000, whatever that is um, in the year of their death. So, and that starts as of January 1st, 2019. Any first responder who died by suicide after January 1st, 2019 qualifies. Anybody before that doesn't qualify. Anybody who cannot fit the criteria of the law will not qualify. So they still will not get anything. Um, and one argument that can be made, and this is the argument I've been making for years, is that if an officer or a first responder is in jeopardy, they often, most often, do not seek assistance because they're afraid of losing their job. So Tim, you can argue that that is a direct result of their job. So um, we, we lost an officer recently who was having a lot of trouble, who had um, issues, and he absolutely positively refused to go get help because he knew his chief was take his gun and his badge and he would lose his job, which has happened previously at his agency. And he ended up taking his life the day that he was supposed to go get help because he was afraid his chief would find out he was going to get help. So so you have, this is such a complicated issue, you know, of who should get the benefit, who shouldn't, why they should, why they shouldn't. But we've made a lot of progress since 2016. So so now there are there are, there are limited benefits. We also see some families, a family in Washington state, her husband just suffered horribly on the job because of the job. And when he took his life, they declared it a line of duty because of, of the, the relationship to the job. So she actually gets full benefits from the city, the state, and the federal government. So that's highly unusual, but it's, it's we're starting to see that happen more often. So So 50%, 60% approval or, or getting benefits is certainly better than the 0% we saw in the past. But we still have to figure out what we're going to do to get people mental help. So that they aren't taking their lives, regardless of the benefits.
1: Yeah, catch it up front. No, going back to that bill—is that the H.R. sixty-nine forty-three bill? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, I was reading about that this morning, and that it does seem like it's it's a good deal. I mean, uh, and was that a bipartisan approval?
2: It was. It was fantastic. So they started this bill back in 2019, and that's the reason it's retroactive. You don't often see bills like this for... Line of duty death benefits retroactive, but it they they crafted it in 2019 and they've been working on getting it through since then and it took a few years. And what happened was after the January 6th events at the Capitol, when you saw those three officers die by suicide, that's what finally pushed this bill through. People, it really wasn't as important. It wasn't on their radar. It was not as meaningful until you saw three officers at the Capitol at a very significant national event, take their lives. And then somebody said, Oh my gosh, maybe it's time we pass this bill. And, and, and some of the, the widows, Erin Smith, she was the widow of Jeffrey Smith. She had a big hand in that. So uh, Senator Duckworth, she was fantastic. So it was definitely bipartisan. It had a ton of support. Uh, we had uh, about 60 families wrote letters to Congress and we sent them off. Some of them were read right on the congressional floor in support of the bill. So so it was fantastic. And I think what's important here is that it's recognized now on a national level that this is a serious problem. The federal government says now mental health of first responders is a real issue. Some of them are entitled to death benefits and we need to pay better attention. So there's now an argument that um, this is an incentive to take your life. I can assure you that it, there's maybe a handful that, that would see this as an incentive. This is not what they're thinking of when they take their life. They're not thinking, geez, you know, if I take my life, my family's going to get this benefit because also there's criteria around it. But this is also a nice preventive measure. So now we're going to see families falling for this claim. So more people that wouldn't report their suicides in the past are going to report it. And Congress, you know, it's that whole thing. If we're spending money, we don't want to spend money. So how do we stop spending money? They're going to see that they're going to have to spend money on these benefits. So they're going to say, well, it's going to be cheaper if we prevent these suicides. So they're going to A, see the scope of the problem because of the families applying. B, they're going to see the cost not only to the citizens, but to the congressional budget. And they're going to say, C, what can we do to make this better? So so this is a really nice um step forward in many ways, some of the families will get support, it is going to raise awareness and it is going to create more prevention. So it's it's a great bill. Uh, It's a little narrow in scope. It's it's you have to really, um, I'm not sure how they're going to interpret it and how they are going to approve claims. They've got about 130 claims in the queue right now for this. One of them has been approved to date because it was one of the January 6th officers. So they were able to prove that within the 45-day window, he took his life, and it was a direct result of the incident on the job. But others are going to be more difficult. So say you had somebody who responded to 9-11, and they took their lives today. That would probably be a qualifier, right? Because it was an on-the-job traumatic event that affected their mental health. But if you have an officer who who can't show uh, traumatic events, harrowing incidents as they are defined in the law, it's going to be harder for their family to prove it. So if they had financial issues and um, just went through a divorce, but they didn't really have any trauma on the job, uh, you know, you can't truly tie that to the job so that that may not qualify for the benefit. So so it is equitable in a sense because people are like, oh, you can't just give it to every suicide. And and, and they're not going to. The, The law is very clear. And if nothing else, I've learned through all of this in the past six years is how rigidly they follow the law, and uh, at the federal level, and how much time it takes to move things through because they have to follow the letter of the law. So uh, it's it's not going to be this you know open the floodgates and all of a sudden people are going to start taking their lives because they're going to get a benefit when they die. That's that's not go- what's going to happen. But it was a great bill, uh, great support on both sides of the aisle, and it, it's. Fantastic. Fantastic! I'm happy it passed.
1: Well, that's good, and I, I know how hard it is to get a bill passed. Because I have one in the Massachusetts State House, and three years, and I have gotten nowhere. And that's the Right to Know Act. It's just a bill regarding uh, if a person 18 or under is getting opioids for a prescription, their parent has to sign off on it. Because in the past, the dentist would be pulling wisdom teeth and. Give the uh, give the patient a sixteen year old, or seventeen year old, a thirty day supply of Percocet. Oh yeah, and that was that was one of the biggest <clears throat> drawbacks to starting teenagers on opioids. You know, it was like they said they estimated one in three or one in four, if they fulfilled that thirty day, um, you know, fulfillment of taking those pills, that they would be hooked. Talked- Cause they'd even get dope sick after 30 days. So they kept oh. taking more pills, you know? And
2: yeah. Yeah. So
1: we need to make sure that the parents know, but uh, I've had six people who signed on the bill, state reps, uh, but we can't get it. Uh, once we get it in a committee, we can't get it out of the committee.
2: Well, so, when you think about, you know, how uh, long it takes to pass this bill, it, it's, it's you know, it's who whose priority is it? Who cares about it? Is it something personal to somebody there? You know, so passing a bill is so hard, because unless, you know, something really, God forbid, somebody who's involved in the Massachusetts legislature, their child dies by this opioid, then it's going to be a priority, right? Just like after January 6th, this bill was a priority. It's it's all depending on who who's interested in it at the time. And it's and it's unbelievably frustrating because when you think about the public interest as bills get introduced, uh, some of them are incredibly important and, and they just, they get so no support. They never pass because it's not important on a national level or somebody important doesn't think it's important enough to pass. So I, I hear you. It's It's hard, but good for you for keeping with it.
1: What does the family actually get? You, like you, besides the money, you talk about the stigma.
2: Mm-hmm. How do
1: we reduce the stigma? Well, how, how do you do that? Because I'm same thing with the overdose problem. We have, a, the stigma is, the, is one of the worst things that we have to deal with. Parents who lost a child from an overdose. And I know if you lose a child from suicide, it's, it's, it's equally as bad. You know it's the worst thing that could probably ever happen to a parent. Mm-hmm. So how, how, what have you what do you do on that level?
2: Yeah, so that's it's it's hard, right? So there has been a cultural shift over the last six years in the first responder community. Uh, people more people are talking about it. Obviously we're raising awareness um, because in the past nobody knew exactly how many. And we still don't know exactly how many, but we have a good handle on it. People are taking their lives. The awareness is is you're you're showing that more first responders take their lives every year then die in the line of duty. That's pretty significant. So that now gives you something to talk about, to change the stigma, to shift it. So what we've done is we've taken the families and when we speak or travel or anything, we take the families with us so they can share their stories. And sharing those stories has made a tremendous impact. I'll never forget the first time we did that. I was back in 2017 in Sturbridge and some of the families spoke and an officer came up to one of the family members and he said, I am ashamed of myself. I know a family who lost their officer to suicide and I've never visited. I've never spoken to her because it was too hard for me or I didn't understand it. And I'm going to go over there this weekend and check in on them and see what I can do. So sharing stories is is unbelievably unbelievably important in in any situation because when you hear number 1 if you hear a story of recovery that gives you hope that there's recovery when you hear the stories of their loss it impacts you in such a way that you don't want somebody else to suffer that same loss. And the stigma itself is, it's, again, it's one of those things that's so complicated. I mean, remember, I'm going to date myself. But My grandmother, you know, back in the day when you talked about cancer, they would whisper cancer. You know, they wouldn't say it out loud. Um, they would whisper it because it was such a bad word to say. Yeah. And that's kind of like suicide, right? We whisper it all the time. But we're not whispering about it anymore. And the more we talk about it, the more we address the stigma and the more it becomes mainstream. And it doesn't make suicide acceptable, it just makes talking about it and preventing it acceptable. So what we do is we have a lot of resiliency training, already um, we call it readiness training, so that the families are ready to understand the job and the challenges, that the officers are ready to understand the job and the challenges. Uh, we do a supervisor training so that they can understand, and supervisors can share their stories of how they overcame their challenges. Because really, you know, too, if you see a chief who's talking about his mental health struggles, it opens up the conversation and it reduces the stigma significantly. We had a mom, Ann, Ann reported her son to us and she, you know, we, we don't, we don't publicize their names or anything like that unless they ask us to. And she said, my neighbors don't even know how my son died. I'm so ashamed. I, I don't understand it. You know, she was guilt ridden. So a year later, she said to me, I've been listening to the other families talk for a year. I've watched you guys supporting families, and I am now ready to share how my son died. So that spoke volumes to me that the power of storytelling, the power of support, the power of honesty, it gave her the courage to talk about her son's death and admit that he died by suicide. So if you look at that on the flip side, when you see officers or firefighters talking about their struggles, it gives you the coverage and it reduces stigma. So in addition, you know, these numbers that we put out, um, you know, they show a lot of things and they, they raise awareness because of of the number and and who's dying. And you're talking about regular people, the guy next to you, you don't know who's going to take their lives next. There's no, there's no predictor, but, but, Having these stories, having these numbers, all of this contributes to st- stigma reduction. So we speak everywhere that people ask us to. We hand out brochures. We have campaigns. Right now, our campaign is "I will listen." We we encourage people to listen to others. Um, so if if you need to talk, I will listen. I will hear what you have to say, and I will try to help you as best I can, or I will just listen if that's all you need. So all of that has helped to change the culture. You look at the FOP, the ISCP the IAFF, all the major first responder organizations, they're all very invested in wellness now. And they, there's programs around the country, major sponsors, FirstNet, Motorola, Axon, they are all sponsoring wellness programs and events to help first responders understand trauma, understand their emotions. And and it's not just trauma, too. It's the day-to-day stress of just being a human being. So so all of that has contributed to the stigma. Again, the sad part is that we'll never 100% get past the stigma, but we're we're chipping away at it a little bit at a time
1: that's good I want to ask you now: do they have in the police departments the or the fire departments or anywhere with this first responders do they have a like a mandatory session so like as you said you you can't tell who's going to be next so and you know and, and I'm involved with sad OD which is another organization for parents who've lost a child from an overdose and we, <clears throat> we see a lot of the men don't want any help. Uh-huh. And I, I call it the John Wayne syndrome. You know, I'm a tough guy. I can handle it. Don't worry. And, and those are the ones that are the, committing the most suicides and, uh-huh. and, uh, of the parents, you know. So like now, so the, the police officers are mandated to at least have a session once a year or something with, with others, not by themselves, but with half a dozen you know, a dozen other police officers. Um, I would think that that would kind of open the door maybe to discussions and that would be something they do. Do they do anything like that?
2: Yeah. So some it's, so it's not mandatory. So the problem with um, first responders is when you look at police departments, there's like 18,000 police departments across the country. Then you have federal city, um, you have DHS, you have, uh, you know, all these different. So, so there's no standard across the country. There are recommendations, but there's no standard. And, some departments are doing that so some departments have a mandatory check-in once a year but there there's very few of them other departments um, we saw a, a program in Indiana where um, the chief put a, a therapist on retainer so people could go to them confidentiality anytime they wanted and the chief started with himself he went first so people could see you know they don't have to advertise they're going but so they have programs like that. So so people have tried to be creative in getting officers um, and first responders to therapy or to get check-ins. But there's not a lot of mandatory check-ins, and you know the reason for that is they're afraid. Uh, you know what 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 comes out of them, what has to be reported because of the mandatory reporting. If you threaten yourself or someone else, you have to report it. Um, so there's there's all kinds of challenges around that and, and, and people concerned that, well, if I talk to somebody or if I seem unwell, uh, somebody's going to know, the chief's going to know, it's going to make it to the papers and, and my life is over as I know it. Um, so, so there's not a lot of mandatory check-ins, no, but there are a lot of programs that are encouraging that. There are people who are winning wellness awards around the country for creative ways of getting people assistance and, and we try to share those stories as best we can so they know um, other pro- other departments can model them. Uh, I wish there was a mandatory check in, but that's so hard. And because you know, uh, who you know, you have to really lay out what that what the purpose of it is, and you have to lay out a policy so that they aren't penalized for going. So, so there's a way back to their job if they do need help. Because if I need help, I take some time off of work, I go get it, and I get to go back to work. But if you're a first responder, it's not that simple. And then we also have. Um, in terms of sessions, so for instance, my husband is at in-service training today. So what that is, is two days a year, or he has to go to what's called in-service. So he has to go requalify qualify for his gun. Um, he has to hear about updated HR policies and whatnot. So it's basically um, two days of t- training off the streets about stuff that goes on. And they do spend about an hour and a half of mental health training or discussing mental health. So which is kind of a sad state of affairs when you think that out of the whole year, uh, fresh responders maybe get two hours of training from their department or discussion about mental health. So so some departments are much further ahead than others, uh, and, and they spend more time in it, some of them have less time, some of them have really robust programs, requirements, others have nothing. So, so that's, again, it's really hard because of the number of departments you have around the country and the, the, there's no, no one, there's no oversight, there's no national oversight. So, so you have to rely on the departments and the city and the states to do the right thing.
1: So isn't there a doctor patient privacy, you know, if if somebody did see the, the, that no matter what the discussion is, they can't discuss it with anybody. So they don't have to report it.
2: There absolutely is. And that's the problem. Um, and this kind of, it's it's so frustrating for me because so many people will say, well, if I go get help, my chief is going to find out. If I go get help, everybody's going to know. No one's going to know unless you tell somebody because your doctor can't tell anybody. So unless you tell somebody, hey, I'm going to get mental health today no one will know but for some reason there is this pervasive fear in this culture that if you get help magically it's going to appear on a billboard somewhere and everyone's going to know and and i truly haven't figured out where that comes from and and i just think part of it is this fear of losing their job seeing officers penalized in the past for getting help and part of it is i think it's an internal fear, you know, um, you know, I'm afraid of the dark. So I turn on the nightlight. And if the night light goes off, something horrible is going to happen to me. I have no idea why I think something horrible is going to happen. I don't know who told me something was going to happen. But I think it's going to happen if my nightlight goes off. So it's a very similar thing. They don't really know why they think they're going to get in trouble. They don't know who said they were going to get in trouble, but they think they're going to get in trouble for getting mental health. It's this weird, um, you know, thought and I don't know this this fear it's an unfounded it's it's not unfounded in that you may be penalized but it's unfounded in that if you get help someone will know no one will know that's between you and your doctor or if you tell your spouse you your doctor and your spouse know you're getting help so so why they don't get help um why they can't see past that I I don't know and like I said that's very frustrating I I don't I I really wish I could answer that question better I do um, but there are HIPAA laws, yeah. I mean, oh. they can't. Nobody can tell on you.
1: Right. Even if you become an inpatient, right? They can. You can take a two-week vacation and end up yep. taking it in the in the hospital, you know. To yeah, uh, or place for recovery or whatever, you know. Um, <clears throat> now you've got quite a few names already. So have you figured out do most of them? Is there a trend? Whether the size big C big police operations or is it country type operations that you see any where which one has the the most suicide or the yes. least amount of suicides yes
2: yeah, so we actually have charts on our website you can click and see which states and typically the states with the highest suicide are texas florida california new york and, and massachusetts is, is usually up there pretty high too believe it or not um what we're seeing really, though, there's no real predictive factors, obviously, but we do see it's more often the smaller or the midsize agencies. So, for instance, when Chicago or New York loses, loses an officer, it's national news. It's, oh, look at all these suicides. But statistically, those departments actually have less suicides than the smaller suicides. So, say, for instance, the New York has 10, but they have 40,000 officers, but you have a a, a department in um missouri they have 100 officers they lose three that's you know what is that 30 how much what percent is that I, gosh my math all of a sudden three percent three percent yes three percent of them so it's three percent of theirs but statistically if new york leaves is 10 it's like 0.005 percent or something small 0.5 percent you know so because it's it's a bigger department it makes national news so um the problem is we sensationalize the bigger departments. It makes it look like the bigger departments have the biggest issue. But in fact, they don't. We're just not paying attention to the smaller departments because they're not New York. They're not Chicago. They're not, you know, as important in the national narrative as these other smaller departments. So so we see more suicides in these smaller to mid-sized departments. Um, you do see a lot of um, suicides they're tip you know white male because that's the population of uh, you know the the, the police force. Uh, as far as industries, the law enforcement industry does not have the highest suicide rate. It's something like mining foresting, construction, things like that. But in terms of females, female law enforcement industry has the highest, suicide rate than any other profession. Uh, Based on what we've seen and we've compared with uh, statistics from other organizations, uh, the CDC, for instance, the data they collect, what we also see is that um, in addition to the female law enforcement officers having the highest suicide rate, overall law enforcement has a higher suicide rate than most, uh, Americans. So if you look at the CDC rates for suicide in the general population, and you compare those rates to the population of law enforcement, law enforcement is higher statistically for suicide rates than the general public. So it's a, it's a tricky thing, you know, numbers because it's, it's high here. It's low here. It's high here. It's, it depends on how you parse out the data, but overall it's a significant issue. Um, they do have a higher rate than a typical, Uh, the regular population. But in terms of professions, female law enforcement definitely has the highest suicide rate. So we have all these demographics that we can track it on.
1: I would think that emergency room care for nurses, especially during the pandemic, might have been pretty high.
2: Yes, yes. and and the problem with the data collection like this uh, is, you know when you look at the reporting, we there was just a, a two day, I was just involved in a two day seminar with like literally with the CDC and Department of Homeland Security and all these people on suicide data collection in law enforcement. And one of the problems is the coding of the profession. So when you code the profession on death, that's what the CDC uses to look at their statistics. So if it's not coded properly, you can't capture it. So so if nurses are not coded correctly, they fall into a different category. So parsing out that data gets a little difficult because, you know, it's only as good as the data you put in. But they they did have a relatively high rate for a short time. Um, they're, and they're definitely, you know, considered first responders in a sense because you, you emergency room, you're coming in, doctors and nurses are dealing with life and death every day. And there's certainly not enough focus on their mental health or on the statistics of their suicides. I'm sure you could find it somewhere, but it's not easily accessible and it's not something that somebody's um, chasing down and promoting to try to get them the assistance they need especially when you look at how many people are leaving these professions including nursing um, because of the stress because of the mental health challenges that's something that we absolutely should be addressing for them also this is not something that is you know just belongs to law enforcement or firefighters this is a nursing issue as well big issue
1: I would think so and how do you operate? all of these different things that you do, where do you get the sponsors from? Obviously, you need money to do
2: this. We sure do. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a challenge, right? And especially now with COVID, after COVID, um, it's a challenge. um, And the the recession. So it's funny because... Pre-COVID, we we were really on this wonderful trajectory. We were raising a lot of awareness. We still do. Um, we we had all these crazy things, like we were on the Dr. Phil show. Uh, you know, I I got to meet the Attorney General. I got to go there and meet with him and talk to him about law enforcement suicide. I've set a number of committees, and then it kind of dialed back because everything was virtual, and so things are starting to ramp up, up. But we were in the public eye so much, it was easier to get donations. So right now, it's more difficult. Again, like I said, the economy. So we get donations a a couple of different ways. We, you know, the general public, our supporters who make donations. We have people who have fundraisers for us. For instance, um, the uh, Trooper Sementelli, he died by suicide. He was a mass state trooper. His family has a golf tournament every year in September, which brings in about $15,000. So we have different organi- different families that do fundraisers for us. We have suicide awareness walks, um, golf tournaments, things like that. We just had a motorcycle group. Uh, they do a poker run for us every year. It raises about $10,000 a year. And then on a bigger scale, we have sponsors like Motorola, uh, FirstNet, Axon. They donate to us to assist with different programs. We have the Sala Foundation out of Boston. They finance our care packages. So they've given us a grant that will pay for the care packages that we sent out. They're an amazing, wonderful, just lovely. I love them. They're great people. Uh, So we apply for scholarship, not scholarships. We apply, we we give out scholarships, but we apply for grants in different places. Uh, So it's just really like any other, Um, nonprofit, just trying to raise as much money as we can, wherever we can. We do, you know, people think that we are this huge organization with millions of dollars, uh, just because of our footprint. But it's really a small organization. We all have full time jobs. Uh, We, you know, I'm on my lunch hour right now. And we just kind of manage this as a passion project. So we, we, you know, having a small team and a small operating budget, we do as much as we possibly can with it. Uh, you know, we'd love to raise over a million dollars a year, but that's just not where we are yet. And hopefully we will be there someday. But but we just, it's, it's hard. Fundraising is, I never realized how hard fundraising is. So we get a lot of um, help from our corporate yeah. partners and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, you're involved in a nonprofit. It is not easy.
1: No, it's not yes I'm the funder most of the time so <clears throat> I understand completely yeah it was, I guess my next question is uh, Karen what is your um how do you how do you maintain yourself with the stamina and I know you work a pretty powerful job in supply management and now you're doing this I mean are you working 70 80 hours a week?
2: I I guess, yeah, I guess if you count it, I I try not to count how many hours I work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm just, but how do you maintain your own energy level, I I guess?
2: Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I work 40 hours a week. I work and then I come home and I usually, you know, make dinner, take care of my kids, whatever, do what I can. And then, um, you know as soon as I take care of what I really need to take care of or what, what's I'm up you know my real life, I, I sit down with my laptop and and bang it out, whatever I have to do.'ve um, I've tried you know more now. I realize it's easy to get sucked into something, especially something you're passionate about and then you leave things behind. So my kids will remind me if I'm not, paying enough attention to them, or they'll say, Mom, can you put your phone down? Can you put your computer down and focus? So they'll help prod me into focusing. And what I've tried to do now is we, we decided we're not going to work on Sundays anymore. So Sundays, we take the whole day for ourselves. And we, we just don't, we don't even, and if I send an email on Sundays, I'll get a text from somebody going, why are you working? You're supposed to not work. You know, somebody on our team saying, you're not supposed to be sending those emails. Um, so, so, so I had to draw some lines in the sand. And I think that's a really important part of mental wellness is, is recognizing what you need. And I needed to stop working seven days a week. So I we took Sundays off. We made it a rule. And then I need, I've asked my family to tell me if I am missing something, if I am not giving you the attention you need, please tell me and I will stop. So because it's easy for individuals to get sucked into what you're doing and forget who needs you around you, because you're getting, you're so busy with whatever you're focused on. So so I've, I've created this thing where I have a day off. I've asked my family to help me monitor myself and I bought a Peloton um, and I'm trying to get on that for an hour a day. So it's just, you know, it's a funny thing because I, I didn't take as good care of myself in the past two years as I should have. And I did suffer from some compassion fatigue and other things. So I do see a therapist when I need to. Um, and I just make myself really aware. I, and it took me some time. And that's a challenge I think for everybody is recognizing what you need when you need it and being willing to admit what you need. But I personally have had my own mental health um, issues in the past and challenges. So I'm very careful not to go down that slippery slope again. And and I, I wouldn't want people to, you know, you, that whole thing where you hit rock bottom before you come back up, nobody should have to do that. They shouldn't have to learn the way I learned. They should be able to say to themselves, what I need matters. What I'm doing is important. My family is important, but they can't have me if I'm not taking care of myself. And you know, you hear people say that all the time. Um, and I finally learned to 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 you know walk the talk because I preach mental health. And yeah, I just, I'm a really high energy person. I'm a type A personality. I, if I don't have a hundred things going on, I I get bored and I'll find things to do. So my personality type just fits for this, but I, I have had to make a very, very conscious effort to take better care of myself.
1: I found as a bereavement facilitator that dealing with people who fresh with having somebody who just died in the family and they're in total crisis, you know, you can can only take so much of that, in my mind, so that you have to take a break from it. And I think that's important.
2: Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, is not everybody can do what we do, right? Not everybody can do what you're doing and what I'm doing. So I talk to almost every single family, and I listen to this story. And if they saw their husband take their life in front of me, they'd tell me that story. And so I'm able to <clears> absorb <throat> that, and, and you know, whatever. It goes into my my body processes it, however processes it. So, you know, we've, we've, we've welcomed other people onto the team to assist and not everybody can do it. And certainly not everybody can do it for six years. You know, when you think about a therapist who listens to everybody's stuff all day, every day, it certainly takes a special kind of person to do that. So um, it's not easy. What you're doing is not easy. Anything having to do with loss or bereavement or suffering or trauma is not easy. So the people who are doing it have to be, the biggest, um, you know, practicers of taking care of themselves. Because, you know, if I didn't take care of myself, and I let every single one of those stories sit with me, I, you know, I don't know where I'd be today, I, I would, I would definitely not be able to continue to help. So unless you can process the trauma that you're absorbing, you can't help anybody. And, and I think that you could talk to yourself about that as well. If, if you can't process the trauma that you're absorbing in your life, you can't help yourself. So you have to seek outside help for that. So I, I, I admire the fact that you're able to talk to those families as well, because it's not, it's not easy. So whether it's breathing or the Peloton or taking Sundays off, you've got to find some way to get it out of your system. You know?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I play baseball. That's my thing. Oh, nice. So once I'm on the field, once we're on the field and the game's underway that's all i think about you know even though my wristwatch is ringing all the time you know
2: i want to shut off my phone yeah if i'm with my family i go you know and i don't need my phone because i'm with my kids and my husband so who needs to you know and it's hard right it's hard shutting off ignoring your watch i bet you it's super hard for you
1: yeah it is and then i eventually i keep the watch on only so i can keep track of my steps (laughs) i don't want any phone calls i just want to keep track of my steps you know that sort of thing because i want my i want my credit you know yeah yeah. um is there anything that i did not ask you that you'd like to bring up that you could you feel that we should know that we that i didn't ask
2: no i i appreciate the time i think um our website it's one the number one 1sthelp.org so it's FirstHelp.org, but first is not spelled out it's 1sthelp.org if you want to check out what we're doing if there's anyone who's listening to this who has lost a first responder to suicide please feel free to contact us for support and guidance um, we you know I appreciate the time I appreciate being able to share our message and I appreciate every first responder out there and everybody who's helping anybody who has any kind of trauma or mental health or drug abuse issues I, I, I think what is important to take from this is it doesn't matter who you are, what you do during the day. If you take a moment to, to assist someone, to care about someone, you, you you may have saved a life and you just simply don't know it. So just be aware of, Of kindness you know take take the minute you know my kids always make fun of me they're like mom why do you always talk to strangers in the grocery line i'm like honey if this is the best interaction they've had all day because i was nice to them then so be it there's no reason for me i go we're standing in this line i may as well chat it up with whoever's standing next to me and you just don't know how you affected someone so so take that moment to to be kind and give somebody a nod hello
1: My grandkids always say that i'm making friends with people and I don't even know their name. <laughs> yeah,
2: <same thing>. I'm <laughs> close. Why not?
1: So, yeah. Every time I get in a plane, I ask the flight attendants if they're having fun yet, you know, <laughs> try to break the ice a little bit. Cause they're, they're all so serious, you know, which, yeah. which is, they gotta be serious. They're doing their job, but at the same time, let's, let's lighten it up a little bit, you know, and, and uh, go from there, you know? So I remember once the, plane was delayed and and we we're going to be on the runway for over an hour. So I, I I convinced the run back when they had a TV on the plane. I convinced the flight attendant to play Happy Gilmore. Oh,
2: no kidding. I love that Adam, movie.
1: Adam Sandler. Yeah, yeah. love <clears throat> and Adam Sandler. She, and Everybody on the plane forgot that we were stuck out there for an hour, but he was laughing everywhere out loud. You know, so was, yeah, because a, a lot of people at that time hadn't seen the movie, you know, so it yeah. was very cool. But uh, you just got to do that a little bit. And and at the end of my other show, I always say when you find somebody out there, give them a hug. That's the problem. Give them a hug because if you give a hug, you get a hug. Can't give a hug without getting a hug back. So you'll be the most well, hugged <laughs> person around if you start giving hugs.
2: I hate hugs. I'm not a hugger. So <laughs> you're talking to the wrong person. Okay. I will smile, wave, and That's talk right. to you all you want. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I I was in Washington D.C. doing a march, and I saw these two vans pull up, and these people were giving out free hugs, and they all jumped out of the van and they were hugging all these people on the sidewalk that they obviously didn't know.
2: So funny! And I noticed, I saw the face.
1: I looked at the faces of those people that were getting the hugs that didn't, and they were they were laughing, they were happy. They it seemed like it was really working. Yeah, yeah. I said okay.
2: Yeah, that works for a lot of people.
1: All right. We've been talking to Karen Solomon, and we want to thank you, Karen, for your time and give you at least five minutes to go get some lunch before you have to go back
2: to work. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh,
1: you're very welcome. And for those listening, go to the website and donate some money. You can always, you know, even if it's a few dollars, it's, it's good. And if you're a corporation and you believe in what Karen's doing, you know, Write out a check for 500 or or 1000 especially if you're a C Corp, because you're going to pay it to the, to the government in taxes anyway, so you might as well give it to Karen. <laughs> okay. And we appreciate your time today, Karen. Thank you very much.
0: When you go out for dinner, you really want to head to the spot you know, and your local gem in the city of Presidents is the Fowler House Cafe. Family owned and operated, the Fowler House Cafe is a Quincy landmark, serving American cuisine and specialty items every day. Stop by the Fowler House Cafe and enjoy their famous buffalo fingers, game day sandwiches, pastas, steaks, and more. Better yet, try their South Shore bar-style pizza now. These crowd pleasers are all homemade and will keep you and your family happy. Trying to catch the Free Jacks game with a few friends on Saturday? The Fowler House Cafe offers 18 different draft beers, including seasonal options, micro-brews, and handcrafted cocktails ready for game day. To top it off, the Fowler House Cafe has 4K ultra-high-def TVs everywhere, so you'll never miss a play again. The Fowler House Cafe, located at 1049 Hancock Street, right in the heart of Quincy Center. Call 617-773-9000 or go to thefowlerhousecafe.com to place your order today. The Fowler House Cafe, Quincy's best.
1: Now we have a different guest. We have Cheryl Juair on. Cheryl is going to talk to us about the sixth annual Remembering Our Angels 5K Run and Walk, which is going to happen on this coming Saturday. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you, Tony. And can you tell us a little bit about the walk, run, uh, and how the event started and so forth?
3: Sure. We, we started this event back in 2018, um, and it's been at the same place at the Moose Lodge in, in Marlborough. Um, it started really small, and it's getting really, really, really big. So that's a good thing. Um, the, the idea behind us starting it really was just um, not just a fundraiser, but it, it's actually always held the day before Mother's Day and that's so that all of us moms that have lost a child can get together and meet each other and just even go for a nice walk so it's it's a time for us to to be together and
1: um we do go ahead no that sounds great um it really does so and so but the but the walk is open to everybody correct
3: the walk is open to everybody. We um we don't get grants, so this is really our only fundraiser and this is our biggest fundraiser of the year. So we're we've got about uh, 20 sponsors on the back of our shirts. Um they did we have amazing support with that. Uh yeah, and it's open to the public. We have almost 300 uh people signed up
1: and you could use a few more. So we can always use like- more. If you would like to support, it's, it's team sharing, though. It's the, the, well, the head. The, yep,
3: yeah, but the website link is uh, www.rememberingourangels5k.racewire.com.
1: If they're going to sign up on day of the race, what time should they be there?
3: Registration begins at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. and the race kicks off at 10. And it, it it's a run/walk slash walk. so we have all kinds of people there we have competitive people and we have just um even elderly people that just just want to walk and and talk with friends no after the race is after- over they, they come back and um bob caves from the pros- prospector uh restaurant cooks up uh hamburgers and hot dogs and uh brings chips and we have a cake and and desserts and we have a ton of raffle prizes, and um, but the highlight is a, is a couple of things this time. Um, we have Jim Wahlberg, who's filming um, Out of the Ashes, and he wanted this 5K to be part of that film, so he will be there with his crew. And also Drew Eldridge, he's a race car driver for NEMA, which is New England Midget Association, Drew just recently put 112 of our kids' names on his race car, and is racing with them on it. And um, so we sponsor his his race car, which is really a cool thing. So uh, it's another attraction for those moms and dads who have their kids' names on that race car. So that race car will be there as well. And the third thing, actually, is uh, John Lally has. From uh, Today I Matter, Um, he has loaned us all the the Massachusetts children's photos that he has. He was just down in Washington last weekend um, to display at this race as well. All those children that we have lost in in like a lawn sign um, photo. So there's a lot to come and see and do at this 5K.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a great day, and the weather's going to cooperate. I understand it's going to be in the 70s on Saturday. That's yes. a good temperature. If it's early in the day, you'll probably get to walk and run when it's in the 60s before it hits the 70-degree mark. Yep. But it's uh, And it's at the Moose Lodge in Marlboro at 67 Fitchburg Street. Correct. And, and we could use more runners, more walkers. Uh, we need to make this affair uh, very, very good for the organization. And I thank you, Cheryl, for uh, discussing that with us. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate appreciate all you you do for this, for the company. Thank you. You're very welcome.